Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to Cardioscripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. In this episode of Cardioscripts, Tracy and Dr. Danielle Blay talk lytics. Enjoy the episode. Today on Cardioscripts, I'm joined by Dr. Danielle Blay, who is a specialty practice pharmacist in the area of cardiology at the Richard M. Ross Heart Hospital at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Blay maintains an active clinical practice in the areas of acute coronary syndrome and treatment of venous thromboembolism, as well as provides pharmacy services to the cardiac catheterization lab. At The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, She is involved in multiple quality committees, including the Interventional and Medical Cardiology Operations Council, STEMI team, and therefore has worked extensively on developing protocols in this area. It's fair to say that Danielle and others in similar positions within their organizations have been heavily involved in either dusting the cobwebs off some old or establishing new thrombolytic protocols for the use of STEMI, particularly in the setting of COVID-19 positive or suspected positive patients. So Danielle, welcome today. Thank you very much. I'm so honored to be able to talk to you and hoping that we can help some of our colleagues that are going to be faced with some things that we maybe thought we would never have to use. Yeah, so on that note, I want to give folks a little bit of background of what we're going to talk about today. And deviating a little bit from our normal cardio scripts process is we're not going to focus as much on one trial. We're going to talk a lot about the various trials that come together in our management of patients who either receive or undergo thrombolytic therapy for acute myocardial infarction. So in 1988, um, it's fair to say that one of the first landmark clinical trials was of streptokinase, aspirin, neither or both. And that was the ISIS-2 trial that is fondly remembered by many of us. And it really showed us the benefit of thrombolysis and acute myocardial infarction. Over the course of the next decade, we determined that there was a benefit of fibrin-specific agents over this agent and elucidated the role of concomitant P2I12 therapy as well as anticoagulation therapy. Ultimately, we determined that PCI was a superior approach, and therefore, it's been about 15 years since the widespread use of thrombolysis therapy for the management of acute myocardial infarction. But here we are in the setting of COVID-19 with many institutions considering or implementing thrombolysis protocols for management of their STEMI patient population. And Danielle and I really wanted to stay away a little bit today from determining if this is the ultimate best approach. I think time will tell us and retrospective analysis of what we do with the management of these patients, but we really wanted to focus on understanding the use of these agents, the concomitant therapies, so that folks who have maybe never used them in their practice, particularly for this indication, have more tools in their their database. It's also relevant to say that none of the trials that we're gonna talk about enrolled COVID-19 patients. So everything is extrapolated and each patient situation and what is best for your patients and your organization need to be considered. So with that being said, are you ready to talk a little bit about lytics and AMI? I absolutely am. Good. Okay. So 
first of all, when we talk about the agent of choice and maybe the comparing the available thrombolytic therapies, will you talk through a little bit um, what's available now and what choices people are making with availability? So there are three main thrombolytics that are currently available. First being tenecteplase, next would be retoplase, and then third would be altaplase. And I can talk a little bit why we had put them in that order. One of the things that I think is going to challenge all of us over the next couple of months will be availability or shortages with these medications. And I'm not going to get into that too much right now, but we are trying to keep in touch with our suppliers and the manufacturers to see where we're at and um, should we start needing to use more of these, which three of these medications are available. I think the next thing that went into play with us deciding which of these thrombolytics that we were gonna use is ease of administration. So up until this point, the only thrombolytic that we had on our formulary was Altaplace. And because of the more challenging way of administering this, this medication for patients that have a STEMI, being a bolus, a little shorter infusion, and then a longer infusion, taking up to three hours traditionally to deliver Altaplace, we have added, emergently added tenecteplase to our formulary because it can be given as a bolus, making the medication as easy, and it could be um, administered over a five-second bolus. The next of these that we would consider if we were unable to get tenecteplase would be retoplase. The advantage with retoplase is that you don't have to worry about the weight of the patient. So those are some of the um, immediate considerations that we went to when deciding which of these thrombolytics we would use. You could also get into some debate of whether tenecteplase has a lower bleeding risk or not, and I think that's something that we could argue on either side, but is maybe one of the arguments that some cardiology pharmacists would provide as to using tenecteplase over the other two agents. And I will add that when institutions are looking at if altaplase is all they have available to them, you know, that's the only one that's approved for stroke, so a lot of organizations already have it available and on formulary, then um, implementing things such as potentially using longer tubing or other strategies to get the pumps outside of the room is reasonable to consider in this case as well. And we've also considered maybe using a non-traditional way of administering the medication, maybe something where we don't have to use the short, the bolus, the shorter infusion and the longer infusion. I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind is treating these COVID-19 patients, nothing is gonna be straightened by the books. So we may need to do some things or make some decisions that are not always supported well by literature, um, as long as it's what's safe for the patient. Yeah, and I think that's where cardiology in particular is fairly uncomfortable, right? We're such an evidence-based field mm -hmm. and everything that we're talking about is extrapolation and the evolution of the data is coming so fast and yet so slow for us that it's um, going to be a lot of retrospective analysis of what we did. As far as the absolute contraindications, what would you put on your list for the setting of STEMI? Because I do think this differs a little bit than when we give it for stroke. That is a great question. And one of the ways that we came up with this list, just so everybody um, has an idea, is we looked at our ACCHA STEMI guidelines. We looked at the European Society of Cardiology guidelines. And then we looked to the package inserts for the different thrombolytics to make sure that we took into account all of those resources. And what we came up with for our absolute contraindications are known intracranial neoplasm, excluding meningioma, 
arteriovenous malformation or aneurysm greater than 10 millimeters, a history of intracranial hemorrhage or ischemic stroke within three months, active internal bleeding, known bleeding diathesis or acquired coagulopathies, recent intracranial interspinal surgery or closed head or facial trauma within three months, suspected or confirmed aortic dissection, and severe refractory uncontrolled hypertension with a systolic blood pressure greater than 180 or a diastolic blood pressure greater than 110. After we came up with our checklist, we also did, because many of these relate to bleeding in the head or concerns for intracranial hemorrhage, talk to our neurology and neurovascular doctors to make sure that they were in agreement with our absolute and relative contraindications. And as far as some of your relative contraindications, I think like so many things right now, these mean they fall into a gray area. So what's your short list there? So our list includes some things that maybe aren't even in any of these, but would put the patient at higher risk for bleeding. So platelet counts less than 100,000. Many of the patients that had these low platelet counts were excluded from any of the thrombolytic trials. Current use of ticagrelor or prostagrel because of the potential increased risk of intracranial hemorrhage with those. Therapeutic anticoagulation, and we didn't necessarily define this because it'll be risk-benefit and have to be discussion if a patient is on something like rivaroxaban at home or pixaban, is this something that we would not want to give them thrombolytic therapy for? And then the, I think the one that stands out mostly to, to me is the cardiogenic shock. Our physicians would prefer to take the patients for PCI if they are in cardiogenic shock. Um, we do have other relative contraindications, and this is something that we can potentially share with the group. But I think overall, what we said is for relative contraindications, it may not be just one relative contraindication that would preclude a patient from getting this, but looking at it as a total package, and that the more of these that a patient would have, that we may want to consider not giving them thrombolytic therapy than just one single relative contraindication. So as far as dosing and availability and maybe some tweezing out some benefits like bleeding, we think that using tenecteplase and retoplase offer some advantage over alteplase for sure. And what about the concomitant anticoagulation strategy with these agents? So again, um, one of the things with the COVID-19 population in particular is limiting nursing time in the room and making things as easy as possible. So traditionally, we would think of unfractionated heparin as one of our mainstays of therapies with patients that get thrombolytics, giving a bolus dose of 60 units per kilo with a max of 4,000, followed by um, a 12 unit per kilo per hour heparin continuous infusion with a max of 1,000 units per hour. But I have often thought about is an oxaparin another option that I traditionally wouldn't think about for these patients because of ease administration, decreased monitoring time and going in and out of the room to check PTTs while patients are on anticoagulation because you will need to continue this for at least 48 hours after the thrombolytic is administered or longer depending on what else is going on with the patient. So with a parent, it can be given and they're not going to have to monitor the PTTs as closely. Yeah. And I, I think, again, these are all older trials for us, what we're used to. So exactly what you're talking about was evaluated in the TIMI-25 anoxaparin and thrombolysis reperfusion for acute myocardial infarction treatment study. Yes. And so that TIMI extract 25 study did evaluate this. Will you explain to folks maybe how anoxaparin was administered with thrombolytic therapy? Yes. 
Um, and I actually had to look this up a few weeks ago because we had a patient that got thrombolytics at a, a facility that was transferring to us. And they said that they gave a 30 milligram IV bolus and then they got to us and I was like, what are they doing? What are they doing? Uh, yeah. So, um, which is always something I think that is good to ask if something doesn't seem right. So they do give a bolus dose of anoxaparin, the 30 milligrams IV, followed by one milligram per kilo every 12 hours. This dose can be adjusted down if patients have reduced renal function or if the patient is over 75 years of age. So with patients with a creatinine clearance that is reduced, they do suggest they're below, or they're below 75 years of age to do one milligram per kilo every 24 hours. And that if they're greater than 75 years of age, you can omit the bolus dose and just do 0.75 milligrams per kilo every 12 hours with a cap of either 100 milligrams for the younger population or 75 milligrams for the older population. How long are you going to continue the concomitant anticoagulation in these patients? So that is something that I think we're talking about trying to figure out what the risk of bleeding is in these patients and the risk of thrombosis. So I think from the initial Chinese experience, as well as some of the things that we're seeing from Italy, or just even listening to the patients that we've been taking care of, there is this prothrombotic state, but with the elevated D-dimer and fibrinogen levels, we're still wondering if this is going to more mimic DIC or just truly a prothrombotic state. So I think it's a little hard to say right now if we'll go out to the year that we typically do for a standard acute coronary syndrome population, or if we might do something a little bit shorter. And I think that will probably unfold as we start to take care of more of these patients. Danielle, I think you bring up a lot of good points, and I think it's further evidence that stuff's evolving very quickly, um, and we don't necessarily have the answers right now that we, we hope to have in the near future. And so like so many different places, um, this podcast shouldn't be where people end thinking about this, because there might be more data by the time we even publish the episode. So constantly be looking at sources like Twitter to then go to the primary reference, or scouring your you know, table of contents as they're sent to us all three times a day right now with updates about COVID-19. Um, there's a lot of things that we're all now responsible for trying to absorb as much of this information as it becomes available as possible. Okay, and when I think back to the extract trial, you know, like many of our acute MI trials, the endpoint was pretty early, so it was at 30 days. So we don't know a lot about long-term outcomes with these, but particularly related to antithrombotic therapy, that's probably appropriate time to look at it. So at 30 days, the use of anoxaparin over unfractionated heparin in the ways that you have described the dosing, the primary outcome of death or non-fatal myocardial infarction was reduced. So 12.0% in the unfractionated group and 9% in those people treated with anoxaparin. And then like we see in a lot of antithrombotic trials that often when efficacy is better, then you exchange that a little bit with increase in bleeding. So there was a slight increase in bleeding evident by major bleeding that increased in a 1.4 for unfractionated heparin group compared to 2.1 in anoxaparin. And minor bleeding was also increased. So I think it's important to denote that there was some benefit. And like you said, in today's era, when we're talking about this use, probably the biggest advantage is the fact that we're not in the room doing um, anti-10As or APTTs, and we're also um, able to administer it less frequently. 
The other thing that I think is important for us to remember is the concomitant um, antiplatelet medications that are used in these patients is much different than what we would even expect to see these days. And I think sometimes um, we may lose sight of that. So use of aspirin was high, but use of clopidogrel, obviously, because that would be one of the only um, antiplatelets that we had at this time, was much lower than what we would see today. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point and segues nice to my next question maybe, which is what are we doing with antiplatelet therapy? So are we still given aspirin? What are we doing with P2Y12 inhibitors and which ones? So what we're going to currently re recommend is that they get your traditional aspirin, 324 milligrams, followed by 81 milligrams daily. This is something in the COVID population with the debate of whether NSAIDs are something that we should or shouldn't be using that I've kind of scratched my head, up, head at. And I think right now our stance is going to be to give aspirin, although this may be something that we'll have to kind of watch out for. And then we are going to stick with clopidogrel as our workhorse for our P2Y12 inhibitor. We will give, if they're greater than 75 years of age, we're going to give 75 milligrams. And then if they're less than 75 years of age, we're going to give 300 milligrams. And then if they end up going to PCI, we'll give some additional clopidogrel either to make up the 300 milligram dose, or if it's been quite some time since they got loaded, the 600 milligrams that you would normally give for PCI. So one of the things we want to definitely make sure we understand is for the patients that are greater than 75 years of age, where does this recommendation come from? If we trace back to the COMMIT trial, which was done in 2005, which was a primarily a Chinese patient population, for those patients that were greater than 75 years of age, they recommended either giving clopidogrel 75 milligrams a day without a loading dose or placebo. So we're trying to answer that question of, is it good to give a P2Y12 inhibitor in the setting of fibrinolytics or not? When you look at the Clarity Timmy 28 trial, which is probably a better representation of how we treat our patients today, where they would get fibrinolytics or thrombolytics and then potentially go on for PCI, they included patients that were greater than 75 years of age. So I think putting all that information together, we know from the COMMIT trial, if they're greater than 75 years of age, that we don't give a loading dose. And we need to reconsider if they end up going for PCI, if we have to give an, a more P2Y12 inhibitor. And maybe related to that, it's a good reminder to folks that with the current thrombolytics we have, about 80% is the reperfusion expectation. So maybe up to 20% of our patients and who knows when you throw in COVID-19, maybe need um, rescue PCI after they've received thrombolysis. One of the other things I just wanted to bring up, um, because we do get a lot of transfer patients at our facility, is what if they've already gotten ticagrelor? Because often that's the first thing that we will reach for because of the way the STEMI and unSTEMI guidelines are written. So the only data that we really have to fall back on for this is the TREAT trial. And I think one of the big caveats to the TREAT trial is that patients were not initially at the same time as the fibrinolytic was given, given ticagrelor. It was given after they had received the clopidogrel up front, and then they could be switched to ticagrelor. So we have still tried to use for these patients clopidogrel as our first-line therapy, and then if we felt like ticagrelor would be a, a better option for them for one reason or another, um, the TREAT trial is one that we can look to to consider that it may be okay to switch patients if we have a good reason not to use clopidogrel long-term. 
know, there's going to be a lot to think about related to the way concomitant therapies develop for the management of COVID-19. So we're talking about the use of a lot of drugs that have potential drug interactions when we talk about protease inhibitors. And this is going to have to be closely followed and examined. So to finish up the ticagrelor conversation, that trial treat also excluded folks that were over 75. So I think we're still in a paucity of data with the older individuals. And patients were all given a loading dose of ticagrelor. So I think that's just sort of clarifying further that the patients less than 75, maybe we feel more confident with a load. And over 75, we fall back to this much older commit trial and say, go ahead and give them clopidogrel, but just don't load it. <laughs> Agreed. Okay. And then why have we not mentioned prosigrel and where do you think you put it? So that's one um, that I've, I've kind of thought about only because I'm concerned about drug shortages and we don't know how all this is going to play out. But I think right now my recommendation based on the Triton-Timmy um, trial and excluding patients that had gotten fibrinolytics from getting Prosegirl up front, that we keep that in our back pocket only because one of the main reasons that we want to stick with PCI over fibrinolytics is because of the increased risk of intracranial hemorrhage. And this is something that really stands out in my mind with prosegrel as a concern. The only thing I guess I don't know that we touched on was the true risk of intracranial hemorrhage. And I say that with the same caveat that we've had with everything else, which is who knows what that is in COVID-19 patients getting thrombolyzed, right? I know. But in clinical trials um, where lytics were evaluated, or maybe in the most recent trials where lytics were given in addition to aspirin and P2Y12 inhibitor and anticoagulation, mm -hmm. what, is, what are we looking at with the risk of intracranial hemorrhage? So one of the things that we may all be concerned about is risk of intracranial hemorrhage with thrombolytics and hence why we have a thrombolytic checklist to make sure that we are considering some of those higher risk factors for intracranial hemorrhage. But when you look back at the TREAT trial, Clarity Timmy 28 trial, and COMMIT trial, the risk of intracranial hemorrhage is really less than 1%. The risk of ischemic stroke also is less than 1%. So if we apply what's on our checklist, we should really be able to safely use thrombolytics. One of the things that we still don't know is, is there something different about the milieu for these COVID-19 patients that may not be represented in these trials that we're basing all of our evidence on? I think the other thing to really remember is that a lot of these trials look for patients to be within that 12-hour window since symptom onset. And then after that 12-hour window, when we look back at ISIS-2, the risk of bleeding with fibrinolytics may outweigh the benefit. And so we just really want to make sure that we're, we're looking at when their symptoms onset and when they presented to the hospital, which is something that is going to be a little interesting to see how this plays out because people may not want to come to the hospital if they're having a STEMI because they are concerned about being exposed to patients with COVID-19. Thank you again, Danielle, for joining us on CardioScripts. Hopefully that provides you all with more information as you and your institutions consider the way to manage these patients. Yes, and I think um, this was a great thing for me to go back. Often we're busy taking care of patients and kind of really go through those trials that we haven't had to look at in a very long period of time and try and make some quick decisions on how to safely use these medications for this patient population. 
Next episode will feature Dr. Toby Trujillo on the Colcott trial. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.